there I was ready to just say, fuck it and leave. And I'll be damned if my dog, Micah, the half border collie, half lab, hybrid vigor, I didn't get the best of both breeds. I got the worst of both breeds. So I had limitless energy and no focus in this dog. And here comes Micah, lays in my lap, licks my face. And all I can think was who in the hell would be willing to take care of this dog? I certainly can't kill myself now. So I flushed the Valium and I drank the wine and I had a hell of a hangover the next day. And the first day of school (laughs) in the second semester, my attitude became, I am here, I am queer, and you can just fucking deal with it. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I'm joined by the woman with potentially the new Blunt Dissection record for number of letters after a name, Dr. Robin Downing, DVM, DAAPM, DACVSMR, CVPP, CCRP, CVA, MS in Clinical Bioethics. I'm exhausted already, I don't know about you. Now, Robin, who will be familiar to many of you, graduated from the University of Chicago, where she obtained a degree in English in 1981, and later from the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine in 1986. Growing up, Dr. Robin had a natural rapport with animals, thanks to her granddad, and was later pushed toward pursuing a career in veterinary medicine by her partner and now wife. Utilising her degree in English, Robin wrote a weekly column in the Denver Post, as well as multiple magazine articles, short stories, and two books. Meanwhile, using her veterinary degree to transform Windsor Veterinary Clinic into a practice of excellence and create the Downing Centre for Animal Pain Management. Alongside this, Robin serves as a trustee for the Morris Animal Foundation and is an affiliate faculty member at the Colorado State University of Veterinary Medicine. It is no wonder that in 2001 she was presented with the prestigious Excellence in Veterinary Healthcare Award by the World Small Animal Veterinary Association in Vancouver and the winner of the 2020 Bustad Companion Animal Veterinarian of the Year Award. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Vetex. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter, or you're burned out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Vetex community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training to Toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. This episode is both a heartwarming and heart-wrenching story of Robin's life. She also holds a second record for the first guest to make me cry not just once, but twice. As she recalls her struggles of both being gay and a woman in the 1980s veterinary industry, but also of how her dog prevented her from taking her own life. Expect to laugh, cry, and be truly amazed by the remarkable Dr. Robin Downing. So welcome to the show, Dr. Robin Downing. Well... 
Thank you so much for that warm welcome. It's really great to be here, and I appreciate our ability to have a conversation over many miles. We have spoken, not being like ships in the night, but passing speakers in the green room, as it were, and I have expressed my hope to have you on the show. So it's really, really cool to have you here today. I think one of the reasons, there's a couple of reasons I wanted to have you on. I am so fascinated by your career and also because you're just such a very kind, warm human being that just exudes just love for things around you. And that, or certainly that's been my experience of you, limited though it may be by our sort of uh, crossovers. But it's you've just been somebody I've wanted to have a good conversation with for, I mean, years. So this is really, I'm so pleased to have this conversation. Well, I share that enthusiasm because, yes, we have spent time in many a green room and speaker ready room, and it's just never worked out time-wise for us to be able to sit down and have this kind of a focused conversation. And uh, I, too, have admired your career and all the things that you do to help veterinarians be better veterinarians. I think that that's something that each of us has an obligation to do in our profession And uh, I will say that that's actually been one of the most uh, entertaining and rewarding aspects of uh, the work I've been able to do. Well, I want to dig into the work you've been able to do. I want to pause, first of all, because actually, in the course of doing the research for this show, my research assistant, Rachel, made a little note, and and I think it was her note, not something she found from you, so feel free to correct this, but... She said that you had an impossibly long line of letters after your name. And I thought, wow, I wonder if we have a qualification off, similar to a dance off, who would win out of Dr. Sheila Robertson and Dr. Robin Downing? <laughs> like, that's, there's more letters than are in the alphabet, like together for both of you. So, Sheila is one of my most admired heroines in the profession. And she sets the bar pretty high in terms of uh, ongoing education and qualifications. So I think she still beats me with letters. <laughs> but our uh, our mutual friend, Marty Becker, says that my business card is only two inches tall, but it's six feet long because <laughs> I keep adding letters after my name. And uh, the way I describe it is that, you know, I have ADD. I don't take drugs. So every minute is technicolor. And the alternative to learning new things and being new things would be probably committing felonies and I'd be in jail. (laughs) That's not a very productive use of my time. No, right. Well, I'm really glad that you've chosen this pathway, not the other. That's perhaps a show for another podcast. a subject for another podcast. So other than mine. So Robin, I wanted to dig in to, before we're going to get into your career, and there's just so, the hardest part about this interview is just knowing, you know, we've got a limited amount of time. I could speak to you for hours, but I wanted to kick back and actually start to get to know a bit about your influences. You know, developmentally, when you're growing up, the easy question is, how do you get into veterinary medicine? And it's a little bit, it's a bit trite and overplayed. I'm kind of interested in, yes, that, how did you wind up in this space? But who are your sort of influences? You're doing something, I think, very unique 
even in this short conversation we were having beforehand, I just picked up so many subtle differences in in the way that you address or touch subjects that I just find really fascinating. So I just wondered a bit more about Robin the person, like how all the rocks were colliding in your past. How was the person, you know, created, brought to life? How did you arrive here as this wonderful human being? Oh, my. It's been a rather circuitous path. And it's always involved animals. And I need to credit my paternal granddad for that. So my dad's dad had the most amazing way with animals. And I clearly inherited that from him. And it seems to have skipped a generation. Not that my parents weren't like animal lovers, but they didn't have the same connection that my grandpa did. And I, from a very young age, like four, five, six years of age, knew that I wanted to be an animal doctor. I didn't even know animal doctors. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I was always the one doing, like I did operations on my teddy bears. And it was, I'm sure it it was a very interesting experience for my parents. We had a dog in our home when I was very young and growing up. And Bo was a great dog. And one of the things I witnessed with him was my sister, who is three years younger than I am, when she was learning to walk, well, I would have been four, four and a half years of age. But I remember this vividly, even at 63 years of age, that one of the things Bo did for my sister was to help her learn to walk. He was a collie shepherd mix, so he was about 50 pounds. And she would crawl over to him and grab onto his medium-length hair coat And he would very slowly stand up and she would stand up with him. And then he would walk really slowly and she would walk alongside him. And I just knew that I had to, I had to know that more. I had to know that better. That's where I wanted to devote my my time and my energy. I had to learn more about that. How does that happen, that connection, that work? And that sent me on this path. Some of, some of the, I mean, that's just one of those stories you just think, have you found an answer to that question? <laughs> that's a, yeah, what you just described there is remarkable. And you hear of all kinds of stories like these. I mean, you see them on they're the ones that have like 15 bajillion plays on YouTube when the animal does something utterly remarkable and it couldn't be chance. It couldn't no. be chance. That, and they're doing something. They're putting someone else's need right yes. at the top of the agenda. Have you gotten close to an answer for that? No, I know. I'm no closer to an answer. Damn it. <laughs> but I know, except what I will say is that I can cite example after example after example for my whole career of other situations just like that. And it's that same psyche that underlies the whole concept of service animals. 
I mean, you think about now the focus on dogs being mm. taught to discern COVID in humans because those of us with COVID emit something that they are able to sense that's beyond our ability to recognize it. And it's faster than any test will ever be able to do. And it's dogs that are doing this and are being then trained to make this discernment. And I look back on my career and I think about the animals that have taught me stuff. One of the seminal experiences that I had once I was a veterinarian was the dog that put me on the path to change the landscape of animal pain management in whatever way I could. And this little blue healer, whose name actually has escaped me, in my very first practice in north central Wyoming, in the middle of nowhere, I lived in a small town of 5,000 people called Warland, and I did an ambulatory practice that was companion animal oriented. So I was the first person to really focus on companion animals in veterinary medicine in that part of the state. I traveled 3,200 miles a month and served 10 communities. I went into people's homes to provide quality companion animal care in their homes. And I had use of another veterinarian's practice building for surgeries and hospitalizations. So this client of mine who had me work both on their dogs and their sheep, because mine had to be a mixed practice based on where I was located, they brought this little healer in to see me at my colleague's practice building and she looked terrible. She had muddy mucous membranes. I could feel an obstruction. I could feel a mass in her abdomen that we assumed was an obstruction. She was excruciatingly painful. So here she is with this bowel obstruction. She's excruciatingly painful. She's in shock. She looks terrible. She has one chance to live, and that's to have a surgery. Her pain was going to kill her before I could intervene. But this is two years into my career, so 1988, and I came out of veterinary school, Dave, at a time when we veterinarians were taught that we should use pain as a restraint technique. So we should not remove all the pain from our post-operative patients because right. they would move around and hurt themselves, which never actually resonated for me, even as a student. But that's what we were taught. Pain was not that bad. And I knew that pain was the, really at the heart of this dog's issue. So I had a client, I was so fortunate, I had a client who was a general surgeon in human medicine, Dr. Vern Miller. And I called him up. I said, I just called him and he took my call. How could the universe have paid such close attention to my need at that moment? And I'm like, Vern, I need your help. I've got this patient and this is what's going on. And I'm not sure what to do. And God love him. Vern never once said, are you a lunatic? Did you not go to school? He said, you know about morphine, don't you? 
And that's where our conversation started. And he gave me some really good ideas and insights into what to do for this dog. And I forged ahead. She had a sand obstruction in her intestine. I took it out, reconnected her bowel. Her bowel looked terrible, but there we were. Ivy fluids, take the obstruction out, keep her in my colleague's hospital for three days. She sloughed the lining of her intestine, so she had bloody diarrhea. I was skeptical even then that she would live through her experience, but she was comfortable. She was no longer painful. And after three days, she went home. And I asked the two brothers who owned her to keep her away from the sheep for at least two weeks. And what they confessed to me later was that three days at home and there she was with their 25,000 sheep because they just couldn't hold her back. (laughs) And she really transformed my entire perspective on the importance of pain and pain management. So that jumped way ahead. I want to go back just a minute to fill in another gap of my landing in veterinary medicine, because I was in high school, 76 was when I graduated, so started college in 76. And I knew no female veterinarians, none, zero. I worked my first job in veterinary medicine in 1978, a million years ago. And once again, no female veterinarians. But I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I began hearing at that moment in time, the drumbeat that, first of all, women didn't go into veterinary medicine, so what was I thinking? And secondly, from my family, don't you want to be a real doctor? And I thought, well, that's fascinating. So I diverted from my path for just about a nanosecond while I was in college and doing my pre-veterinary slash pre-medical training. And one day in my sophomore year of college, I was sitting in the honors program lounge, and I was looking around the table at my colleagues and classmates, many of whom were pre-med. I looked to my left and I looked to my right and went, I do not want to spend my lifetime with these people because they're horrible. They're horrible people. I really do want to be a veterinarian. This medical school thing is all wrong. So I was with this dilemma. And then in 1980, I had the privilege, late 1980, early 1981, of working in a practice in Chicago where I had the chance to work with the first woman veterinarian I had ever met personally. And Dr. Bonnie Faust, who has since passed away, was an enormous influence on me because really, first of all, she was a living, breathing woman veterinarian. But more importantly, she created a connection with clients and with patients 
that really helped me better understand how I could blend competence and compassion. And it's that combination that really has been my North Star through all of what has become my career path. I don't know if this is written on your business card, but it it might as well be because I think those two words, you know, I remember when I first started coming to speak at conferences and it was 2011, I'm sat in the speaker ready room in the National Harbor, CBC, and I was sat at a table and I'm looking around this table and I'm having what can only be described as just this epic dose of imposter syndrome because <laughs> I've, I've got Professor Bojrab sat opposite me. I've got Eric Monet to my right. And I'm just looking, I'm like, these guys wrote all of the books that the people that taught me learned from. And I'm just thinking, what are you doing here? What is, uh, you're going to be found out in any second. And some of those people were very intimidating. And and certainly with academia, like people with loads and loads of letters after their name, I do find quite intimidating because I don't have a very academic brain. But, you know, just from moment one, and I have to say many, many of these people all very similarly put together, but but just the loveliness radiates out from you. And I think it's that competence and compassion. They're, they're two words that I just think, oh my goodness, that that's kind of Robin, right? I want to dial it back. There's maybe some other things that'd be interesting to dig into and, and perhaps sticking with the, you know, what it was like back then, because of course now we are, we're so flipped around that, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, the gender balance has gone miles and miles the other way. I'm just curious what it was like back then. I remember speaking to Temple Grandin and interviewing her a few months ago. And she said the hardest thing about her career, it wasn't the autism, it was being a woman in the industry that she was in. I wonder what your perspective is on coming into a heavily male dominated profession in transition from a you know livestock based industry the animals are making that slow but you know completely unstoppable creep from utilitarian to being life support in many ways what was it like so a couple of things first of all temple grandin is as you know here in fort collins colorado at colorado state university and I live just a few miles from Fort Collins, so it's been really exciting to see her now land here at this part in her career. But as a veterinary student at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, I had the opportunity to meet and listen to Temple Grandin speak to my class in veterinary school as she was working on her Ph.D., And her mentor was one of our instructors. And it was just, it was transformative. It was an amazing experience to listen to her describe how she viewed the world and how much empathy she had for the animals because the way she views her surroundings is much the way that the animals view theirs. And then to witness her change over the years, her evolution over the decades from someone who, when she spoke, was very monochromatic in her speech, 
but never did her eyes leave the floor. So she would advance her slides. So yes, two by two Kodachrome slides. She would advance her slides and knew exactly where she was in her talk at every minute, but her eyes never left the floor. And if you have had a chance to actually see her speak in a live setting recently, you know that's not at all how she presents. And she has just set the bar so high for how we as humans can evolve and change should we have enough drive and desire to do that. So circling back to the female thing, the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine class of 1985 was the first class that was 50-50 men and women. So mine was the second class that was 50-50 men and women. That said, it was one of the most misogynistic environments I could even imagine finding myself in. It was a very interesting time. And we, the female members of the class, uh, some of the large animal professors thought it great fun to provide particular challenges to us. Overall, I had a really great experience in veterinary school, so I don't want to make it sound like it was all Sturm und Drang, but it was really interesting how few of our professors were female, and the few that were, there were several of them who presented a persona that actually seemed to mimic what the male professors presented. So it was a very different dynamic than what I see currently among the faculty at the veterinary school here at CSU, for instance, which is where I have most of my experience with academics, and very different from what I see when I'm attending a conference and listening to my female colleagues who are much younger than I am, who've come into academia in the subsequent decades. So it had its challenges. One of the most important for me personally was that in that era, ours was a very homophobic profession. And so it was a very interesting experience for me who had been an out lesbian since 1978 to in 1982, four years later, you know, I spent four years getting my consciousness raised and figuring out how to navigate a world that was pretty hostile to Mm. the LGBTQ community to then get to veterinary school and go straight back in the closet and That was a very, very disconcerting experience. I was already partnered with the person who ultimately, I can say, became my wife when our SCOTUS wrote the opinion that provided marriage equality here in the U.S. But we had been together for four years at that point, and we were living apart because 
she basically told me that if I didn't go to veterinary school and I didn't fulfill what she saw in me that I was still discovering, that she would leave me. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. My condition for us to remain partners is for you to complete your professional education. So back in the closet, I went and that was the part of being at school. So beyond just being female, for me, it was not so much about being female. It was about being a closeted gay woman. And it was in my sophomore year. So between first and second semesters that I reached my very lowest point. And this is a story that I have related to a few folk, particularly people who've come to me over the years to express their concern about coming out in the veterinary workplace, either in industry or in practice. And I I think it illustrates why it's so toxic for us not to be able to acknowledge who we are. So there I am in my apartment all by myself between semesters. And at that time, at least, second year, first semester was really acknowledged to be the worst semester of veterinary school, the hardest academically, the most demanding. And I certainly found it to be the case. And there I was at my very lowest point, literally in my lifetime. And I just said, I think I can't be here anymore. And I had in my possession enough diazepam and a bottle of wine, plenty, to exit. And we talked about the importance of our relationships with animals. And this is the part that's hard for me to relate. But there I was ready to just say, fuck it and leave. And I'll be Damned if my dog, Micah, the half border collie, half lab, hybrid vigor, I didn't get the best of both breeds. I got the worst of both breeds. So I had limitless energy and no focus in this dog. And here comes Micah, lays in my lap, licks my face. And all I can think was, who in the hell? would be willing to take care of this dog. I certainly can't kill myself now. So I flushed the Valium and I drank the wine and I had a hell of a hangover the next day. And the first day of school in the second semester, my attitude became, I am here, I am queer, and you can just fucking deal with it. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness oh, Robin I've got such a big smile on my face at the same time as I'm crying like <laughs> you've got you talk about getting me in the feels I mean wow thank you for sharing that I mean it's oh whew. I just think it's it's so important for us to realize that you know when I heard you talking about your imposter syndrome you know, we all, all of us who are hyperachievers, we all experience that. And I think it's so important for us to just be reminded and be grounded periodically 
in the reality that we do our best work and we matter when we acknowledge like who we are, what we do, and how we fit in this jigsaw puzzle that we live within. Can I ask how did you firstly the, the decision not to, you know, to go back in the closet was just an incredible I don't know if burden's the right word. It was a burden, but it was just a, a repression of who you were and, and just mm-hmm. an imposition on your soul and, and your person to live a way that isn't the way that is you led to this incredibly dark moment. And God bless Micah. And then I'm curious, so almost was it a fear of how it would go if you couldn't be you? What led to the decision to make that choice? And then the part B to that question is, how did people respond to you when you came out and said, this is who I am? Was the first part of your question, like, why did I decide yeah, to become was it a, closeted? Yeah. And it's really, the if I can give context to where my question came from, it was just a, I'm curious about the nature of, of our fears and what it does to ourselves when we don't address them and we don't do things that feel like they might be really, really good decisions because we're scared of what might happen next. And maybe that wasn't the reason. So I'm coming at this with a, a very open, mm-hmm. from a very open place. But I'm, I'm curious about both halves of the before and the decision and then the impact afterwards. What happened? Like, how did people respond to you? So to the first part, I actually had never... So part of this, I have to give some context. We have to remember that time of our culture yeah, so absolutely. it was the early 80s, and our entire culture was just permeated with this general sense of homophobia. And there were pockets, obviously, of more progressive thinking. But you have to remember that era of, I mean, it wasn't all that long after Stonewall, and people were just sort of feeling their oats about being out. And like Chicago was a great place to be out. But Champaign, Illinois was very provincial. And the veterinary profession was also quite provincial. And part of it really drilled down to this sense that these people in professorial roles had the power over Mm. whether or not we would be able to remain in school, complete our programs successfully, and that they could torpedo our futures in veterinary medicine. And so this was a very conservative drumbeat that I heard before I went to school. And then certainly being in Champaign, Illinois was quite a cultural shock because it was a very provincial kind of environment. Even though it was a state school, the veterinary school was really separated from the university writ large. So my fear really came from the sense that my professors and then my classmates really were in a position to make my life a misery if they had this thing that they could use as a weapon 
uh, as a target against me. So that led to the decision to really isolate. And, and in retrospect, there are very few things in my life that I really look back and have any regret about. But I do regret that because it meant that I, I really didn't have the opportunity to bond with my classmates that I might have otherwise. And that's tempered a little bit by the fact that, to answer the second part of your question, what happened when I just like said, fuck it, this is who I am. It's so fascinating to realize that when we worry about people talking about us, we just need to get over the fact that they're already talking about us. And so it isn't like they didn't know that I was a dyke because clearly I was. And I didn't have like a D tattooed on my forehead or an lavender L tattooed on my forehead. But by and large, most people are savvy enough to put pieces together and understand who other people in their world are. And it was fascinating to me. It was almost like that experience that people relate sometimes when they come out to their parents and their parents say things like, we've known since you were eight. Well, that was kind of my experience in school. And I had a couple of classmates, three male classmates who took it upon themselves to make as much of a fuss as possible any time they had an opportunity to target me and my person and my persona based on this information that I confirmed for them, like this was what they thought. And then I came out and confirmed their suspicions. And the three of them were absolute, they were just three of the most horrifying and horrible people ever for the rest of my academic career at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. Now, the interesting thing about those three gentlemen is that in the ensuing years, so the first event happened about 15 years after we graduated, I was speaking at a meeting, and one of them, whom I had not seen since we graduated, came up to me after my lecture and asked me if I would be willing to go into the exhibit hall at this conference and have a coffee with him. And I must drop my teeth, frankly. And I, I won't name him, but I literally almost dropped my teeth. But I said, sure, I had nothing to lose. Why not? So we went and we had coffee. And this person said, I'm making restitution in my life of the people I've harmed. And I want you to know that I deeply regret how I behaved to you in veterinary school. And I would like to ask your forgiveness. I was speechless. I was absolutely speechless. It was the last thing in the world I expected. And we went on to have a very animated and very congenial conversation. And the second of this gleesome threesome 
I spoke at the University of Illinois. I was invited to deliver a, a day of lectures. It was the first time I had been back since graduation. And this classmate of mine, who still practices in the state of Illinois, came up to me after my day of lectures, and he knew I wasn't leaving until the afternoon of the next day. And he asked if he could take me to breakfast the next morning. And again, I was aghast. I had no <laughs> idea. I'm like, okay, sure, let's do that. And so we met for breakfast, and we had almost that same conversation. He said, I regret very little in my life, but I regret this, and I want to make it right, and I'm asking your forgiveness. And so it illustrates, I think, the fact that we humans can be redeemable. We have to acknowledge and recognize when we're shits so we can actually understand that we need to be redeemed. But it was a very interesting, for me, such a very interesting experience to have someone have carried, like, those guys didn't burden me. After I left school, I was like, you know, as Nietzsche said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And so I felt like those experiences tempered me the way that we temper steel. Because yeah. tempered steel, which is subjected to extremes of heat and cold, is stronger than steel that isn't tempered. So for me, it was a, a strengthening experience. But for these two people, this was a burden they carried until they decided not to carry it anymore. And it certainly makes me feel a tiny bit good that I was able to help them be unburdened. Such powerful stuff. Like, I thank you for sharing it all for, for first thing. And I don't know if it's too glib to say that, you know, it just things get better when we let love come into our heart, not fear, right? Like, or that which mm -hmm. we don't understand, it's not to be destroyed, it's to be understood. Mm -hmm. So I told you I could talk to you for hours, Robin. <laughs> I want to actually just pause a second on the veterinary thing because you came back to veterinary medicine, but you did your undergrad in English. What took you that direction? This, this seemingly, you know, not railroad, but this, this arrow shot straight to a place where you so clearly, utterly belong. But with this diversion into taking English as your undergrad, how did that happen? And, and actually, like, I, I'm just curious to sort of explore, because I think you use a turn of phrase that's a little different. Let me give you an example. People talk about the human-animal bond. You talk about the family-pet bond. And when we were talking earlier, we were talking about suicide. You didn't say commit. You said complete. There's just, there's subtlety in the language you use. Examples all over the place. And I, I link back to your English degree. And I'm just curious, how did you end up there? And it looks like it served you, but tell me more, like, what have you done with that? And why did you go there in the first place? What a great question. And one I love talking about. So when I got ready to go to college, it started 
predictably enough, in high school, where I had the privilege of landing in a, a high school that was highly focused on college prep. And as a consequence, we had a full palette of advanced placement courses. And I had always been a reader. So one of the things that actually served me well, in spite of being ADD, uh, long before it was fashionable to make the diagnosis, is that literature, the written word, really opened up a whole world to me. So I was a voracious reader from the time I was like very young. And it gave me a way to, just because of the way my brain works, to hyper-focus. And so I was a fast reader with high comprehension. So I came into my high school experience already really jazzed about reading and thinking about what people wrote. And so I had a really great English teacher in my senior year of high school who uh, was advanced placement in English, and he fostered my ability to communicate, to put thoughts on paper and, and to craft language and to really appreciate written language and literature. So when it was time for me to take my advanced placement exam, I actually scored a perfect score. And what that allowed me to do was enter Loyola University of Chicago with two years of English under my belt just by virtue of that exam. So I didn't have to take any of the rudimentary coursework like composition and those kinds of classes. I went straight into literature and I was guided to do a survey degree, meaning we would start with Beowulf and my education would span the written word in English up through the modern era. So a survey degree, I didn't focus on creative writing and I didn't focus on a particular era. And each course that I took, I mean, the deeper I went down this rabbit hole, the deeper I wanted to go into the rabbit hole. And I knew going in that I was either going to go to medical school or veterinary school. So I knew that I had certain courses I would need in order to qualify for those professional degrees. But having two years of English already taken care of, it made a choice of English literature as a major a pretty easy one to make. So that was part of my decision. The other part of my decision was recognizing that in that era, there were typically between 10 and 15 applicants for each spot in veterinary school here in the U.S. Yes. And that's not very good odds for getting into the program. And I knew that I needed a backup plan. And I also knew that if I washed out getting into veterinary school, I could fully embrace a career teaching literature. I could fully embrace pursuing a master's and a PhD ultimately in some aspect of the written word. 
and then to leverage that as an academic. So English was my backup plan for a career. Now, the really cool part is that I still had to take all the science and the math to prepare to go to professional school. And I, in college, was like a kid in a candy store. So (laughs) there was so much to learn and so little time. And I'm really grateful that I chose Loyola University of Chicago because it's a Jesuit institution. And I am not a Catholic, never have been. However, the Jesuit order is a religious order dedicated to education. And so the Jesuits provide a very structured, what they call a core curriculum that everyone will take. And that meant exposure to social sciences and math and theology from an historical perspective and history and psychology. I mean, it's mandated. You will take this many hours in these disciplines. And so I ended up with a really well-rounded education and found that I could, in fact, minor in science and minor in math and feed that part of the prerequisites for professional school in medicine, whether it was human or veterinary. And that really drove a lot of my decision-making. And the balance for me, because I have very little left brain, I really am not a statistician. Mathematics for me, I was great with abstract math, but adding and subtracting was really a challenge. I had to balance the science part of my curriculum with the heart-based part of my curriculum, which was the literature piece. And I knew coming out that if I didn't get into veterinary school, I had prepared myself for a path that I would enjoy, even if I couldn't pursue my first love, which was dealing with animals. I love that. Is there any advice you would give for you know, the next generation of vets coming through now? Like, How can they best prepare? Because I think some of the, you talked about the, you know, the steel and forging the sword and going through the experiences that you, you know, living through these things, you're really talking about in a more eloquent way, what we now call building resilience. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, you know, it's one of the big challenges we face. Here we are, you're 63, you're still in practice. You still have the passion for practice and doing this. Is there any advice you would give to the next generation of, of veterinarians coming through as to like, what advice would you give them in order to get their footing or their demeanor or stance in such a way as to be able to, I'm going to use the word endure, but I don't want it to sound like I'm Mm -hmm. saying like, this is awful. This is going to be terrible. But, but life is about enduring. It's about all sorts of things, isn't it? But you love and pain and all sorts, but, but there is much to bear and endure and certainly learning something as complicated as veterinary medicine. It isn't easy. What advice would you have for the next generation, this generation coming through? What a great question. And I think part of my answer would have to be for folks who think they are interested in working with animals before going to veterinary school is to think about 
how they spend their undergraduate time. I think it's unfortunate that, for instance, a sad reality for me is that is the knowledge that I couldn't get into veterinary school now with my credentials, my academic credentials, because right now the selection process has changed so much. So I came into the profession at a time when there was some value that was attributed to, for instance, work experience. I worked 30 hours a week while I was an undergraduate. And as a consequence, can I ask what you did? Oh, so I actually worked for my dad who had a business selling firefighting equipment. So uh, fire hoses that you see folded up in commercial buildings. His business was acquiring the pieces that you bought your hose from this company and the couplings from this company and the cabinets from the third company. And then he would assemble them and his primary customers were contractors, commercial contractors, and he worked with a few fire departments as well. So I did that and I worked in between semesters at the veterinary practice that had given me my first job in a suburb not far from where my parents lived. So I was able to live with them and commute to work. And then I had a job at a practice in the city in Chicago on the near north side, where I worked again in between times of being in school uh, full time. But I also worked, I was a work study student at Loyola. So I had a part time job through the work study program because I didn't come from an affluent background, but I was going to a private college and I was able to earn a couple of scholarships that really helped, but I needed to help finance my education. So that coupled with the fact that I always took more hours than was recommended, like I had to go to the associate dean every semester for permission to take more hours than the average student. So I never had fewer than 20 or 22 hours in a school where 16 was considered the maximum load. So there was no way for me to earn a 4.0. So I feel bad about that because I, I feel like I have brought to the profession the richness of my experience before I ever became a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. So back to this whole selection process, I feel that we are starting to see a little bit of a seismic shift in how students are chosen, where we are returning to this idea that well-rounded individuals, meaning people with more experience than just being with a book, being one with an academic program, that this is valuable. And so my guidance to those young people who are contemplating veterinary medicine is really twofold. One is figure out a backup plan, because at any point you may find that 
pursuing a veterinary degree may not be the path you really want to be on. And you can still serve animals in other ways. And then the second piece would be pursue your passion. So make sure that you don't sacrifice your passions on the altar of creating an academic portfolio that you think will propel you into veterinary school. It worries me so much to know that our profession has such a high incidence of veterinarians self-harming. And so many who complete their education and then leave the profession, that I made a mistake, I shouldn't be here. When we have such a diverse profession, there's so many places for people to pursue passion. And you use the word resilience, and I think that that is such an important concept for our profession to embrace from the beginning of the educational process all the way through all of the career path, because it shouldn't be about enduring things. It should be about embracing things and allowing those challenges not to harm us, but to help us and to help us in this creation of a resilient psyche. So bioethics, <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> I want to change gears a little. And I know this is just such a huge area. And then I think in the first time, like I hadn't seen you for ages and we we're in Kansas City and, and we spoke and, and very quickly you started to talk about bioethics and instantly I was fascinated and instantly I wished I had a microphone running there and then. And so I wanted to just ask you, let's start with what is it? Like what's taken you this direction? And perhaps it's, that's really obvious, in which mm -hmm. case, you know, just consider me an idiot and just go with it. And why does it matter? Not just to you, but why should it matter to us all? So another great question, of course. I would a bit of a three-part with that one. <laughs> that's great. That's a juggler's so, question. There's three balls to keep in the air there. But I've got it written down. So. It's all good. So bioethics. And specifically what I am focusing on is clinical bioethics. So clinical bioethics is really, to sum it up, all about asking the question, just because we can, does that mean we should? And so the role of a clinical bioethicist is not to sort of dictate or mandate what should be done with patient A or patient B but rather to facilitate conversation, to extract information and background and context to help patients and their caregivers to reach a conclusion about what should be done. And the sort of the most obvious application of this kind of conversation happens sort of disproportionately at the very beginning of life when we face challenges with newborns who are under some sort of duress. And at the very end of life, when we live 
with the knowledge that the majority of people actually don't want to die in a hospital with tubes coming out of every orifice. And yet very few people are able to pass in a very sort of contemplative and peaceful way, whether they are in their own home or in a home-like setting. So the very beginning and the very end of life. And those are that's kind of where bioethics sort of emerged was with the understanding that we need a way to facilitate decision-making and physicians weren't doing a very good job. Part of the dilemma is that medicine has advanced into these technological arenas that just stagger the imagination and physicians So medical ethics actually still relied a lot on doctor knows best and the doctor says, we will do this. And the patient says, yes, we will. So in the early days of bioethics emerging as a discipline, it really wasn't physicians who allowed that to be birthed was primarily philosophers who were asking the question, why should physicians be in a position to mandate or dictate what happens to patients? And out of that sprung this this discipline that provides context for ethical, difficult decision-making at the bedside. So what's the application to veterinary medicine. Well, I I like to make the distinction that there are some really good people doing really excellent work in the area of animal welfare and animal handling, how we deal with wildlife, how we deal with zoo animals, how we house animals. That's animal welfare, and there's some really great people doing really good work. That's not my focus, and that's not my interest, because they're already doing that. When I look at clinical bioethics and veterinary medicine through the same lens, what I see is that our profession has now experienced an explosion of technology that puts us in a situation where we need as veterinarians and veterinary healthcare providers to now have a formal framework within which to ask the difficult question just because we can do something to or for an animal, does that mean we should? And I absolutely believe that the principles and practices of clinical bioethics can and should be applied in a veterinary context. And what that means, and this is where my work is considered a particularly innovative, is that I believe that animals do have moral agency and as a consequence deserve our attention to how these principles and practices can and should be applied to them. Whether we're talking about respecting their autonomy which means respecting their expression of preferences, or we're talking about non-maleficence, which means avoiding harm. So avoiding the harm of negligence, for instance, 
where we have a very real opportunity for a patient to die if we forge ahead with a procedure for which we're not qualified. Or we look at the principle of justice, which in human medicine is all about allocation of scarce resources. But in veterinary medicine, I would posit that it is more about fairness, meaning that I am going to present each client I see whose animal is experiencing a problem with the same set of information, the same set of choices, independent of who those individuals are who bring those animals to me. So I'm not going to discriminate based on my impression of a client or my impression of a, of a patient. Um, we in veterinary medicine, we're used to making decisions sort of by the seat of our pants, uh, by what our gut tells us. And I really believe that part of the distress that we witness in veterinary medicine, part of what is fueling this fire of self-destruction among veterinary professionals is at least in part influenced by some moral distress where we have people trying to make good decisions, but without the benefit of any kind of formal framework to help them better understand what are the moral underpinnings of the decision-making that must be made in partnership with the client. And that's really where clinical bioethics for me really came to me is an insight into something that was missing in the profession. My entree into it was really taking a position that one of the things we need to do is reframe companion animal pain, not only as a physiologic issue, but as a bioethical issue as well. How I landed here in bioethics was actually through my association with a human pain organization that was known as the American Academy of Pain Management. And the AAPM was the U.S.'s largest interdisciplinary pain management organization. And I attended their meetings with a couple of colleagues from veterinary medicine who decided that we needed an organization in veterinary medicine like the AAPM and that group of individuals. So Peter Hellyer, Charlie Short, Peter Pascoe, Gwen Carroll, myself, and a handful of others founded the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management and we patterned it after the American Academy of Pain Management. And it was at one of those meetings when I was a, an invited speaker that I met an individual named James Giordano, who is a neurophysiologist who became a neurobioethicist. And Jim and I absolutely hit it off like, I have very few relationships in my life, like my relationship with Jim, and he is now affiliated with 
the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown School of Medicine, so Georgetown University in Washington. And Jim was really influential in my understanding that my interest in pain actually needed to expand to encompass this issue of difficult decision-making. And it was kind of a crazy leap forward that in late 2010, at the end of the year, at a time of reflection, I asked myself, how could I embrace this discipline of bioethics? And by that time, I had become the third veterinarian in the world to credential as a diplomate in the American Academy of Pain Management. And I was well on my way to trying to make change in veterinary medicine in the area of pain management. But what Jim offered me was an insight into how to change the context and how to bring a more structured framework for difficult decision-making into veterinary medicine. And that's when I stepped onto the path of clinical bioethics at Union Graduate College and the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in 2012. And I've never looked back. I will graduate with my doctorate in clinical bioethics a year from this month at Loyola University of Chicago. So I've actually brought my education full circle back to my <laughs> origins. And I, again, I never look back. What I hope to do in my remaining time in veterinary medicine is to be able to expand our collective understanding of how important it is to have a moral framework beyond what I'm able to do right now in my teaching at Colorado State University. So right now, as an affiliate faculty, I teach first-year veterinary students an introduction to clinical bioethics so that when they get to clinics, they actually have some idea of how to ask questions and formulate answers and facilitate discussion with a framework within which to work, with a vocabulary that allows them to understand how to attribute moral agency to the patients they will serve. And then ultimately, Dave, my intention in pursuing clinical bioethics in a formal way, as I have, is that I need something to be able to do when I'm 90 and can't crawl around on the floor with my animal patients anymore. And I intend to work as a clinical bioethicist in human medicine in some capacity, because I do feel strongly that my perspective as a veterinarian provides me with a unique way to frame bioethical conundra and I hope ultimately to be able to work in the end of life arena, 
facilitating and advocating for individuals to have control over how, where, and when they will die. I think that's critical and it's hugely missing from human medicine in most places. The question I want to ask you is to dig into this just a little more practically. I'm actually curious about the framework and perhaps giving it a, because I appreciate that you probably have other things to do with your your day. So, but can you give me an example of the framework in use so that anyone listening can get a sort mm-hmm. of grasp on how does this framework work in a way of that can alleviate some of the moral distress? Is, is there an example that you can use to sort of bring this, just give it some texture? Oh, as Why limit to one? As, as Bobby, I think it was Bobby Burns who wrote, let me count the ways. So Bobby Burns, I love that. <laughs> well, I, I you know, as, they, as Bobby Burns said, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after Glay. So I've I certainly had that experience. It. This is how English as a first degree has served me so well because it gives me an opportunity to pull out phrases that I love. In any event, to your point, let me actually use an example that is uh, particularly resonant and particularly relevant at this time, and that is the issue of feline toe amputation. So feline toe amputation, we have as veterinarians uh, really done our patients and ourselves and our clients a huge disservice by sanitizing this procedure with the term declaw. It isn't. It's ludicrous to use that sanitized term because we need to call it what it is. Our clients have no idea what that procedure is when we call it a declaw, but it certainly gets their attention when we call it what it is, which is feline toe amputation. Why is this relevant at this time? Well, because we are finally recognizing in our country and in our profession here in the States that this is a barbaric procedure that tortures the cat and sets the cat up for a lifetime of torture and that it's something that should be, as it is true in your country, should be banned here in the U.S. Here, here. So one of the things that I have done is to create a talk that I've had the privilege of delivering multiple times and have been invited to deliver now into the future that actually looks at this issue of feline toe amputation from three different perspectives, from the perspective of pain. And as a pain expert, I certainly can speak about that. From the perspective of biomechanics and as a board certified member of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. I am a biomechanist by training. And then the third aspect in viewing feline toe amputation is the bioethical aspect. So in veterinary medicine, from a superficial perspective, we think about applying bioethical principles really within our relationship with our clients. But my approach, when I look at feline toe amputation, how should we evaluate it bioethically, is to look at this by 
applying these principles to the patient. So let us look first at the issue of respect for autonomy. So the animal's autonomy, their ability to be themselves, to express their natural behaviors, to express their preferences and have us respect those preferences as expressed. If we think about us inflicting uh, what really amounts to torture on them, we could ask the question, would a cat have the preference, would they express the preference of having their toes amputated and being subjected to a lifetime of pain and having stripped from them the ability to perform natural behaviors. And on all three counts, I think it's pretty self-explanatory that the answer would be a resounding no. The second of the four sort of cornerstone principles of clinical bioethics is non-maleficence or avoiding harm, do no harm. And so if we evaluate the cat within the context of non-maleficence and ask the question, does it inflict harm? Do we pursue harm by amputating their toes and altering how they move and setting them up for self-perpetuating maladaptive neuropathic pain? We can certainly answer the question, yes, this reflects a violation of this principle of non-maleficence, of avoiding harm, non-maleficence being that principle that applies passively, really, to all beings in our sphere. We have an obligation to avoid harm. Then we look to the third of, again, what I consider the four core principles of clinical bioethics. Having been trained as a principalist, it's beneficence. And beneficence is a step above non-maleficence. So non-maleficence is about avoiding harm. We're going to avoid harm by not amputating their toes. But beneficence is an active principle, and it really embraces this concept of acting in the patient's best interest. So if we ask the question, is it ever in the cat's best interest to amputate P3 and rob them of natural behaviors, change the biomechanics of their entire body, and potentially set them up for a lifetime of self-perpetuating maladaptive neuropathic pain, then the answer has to be a resounding no, that this is not, in fact, acting in their best interest. And then finally, looking at justice, which, as I mentioned earlier, and as I apply it in veterinary medicine, I prefer to think of it in terms of fairness. In the context of the client, I think about fairness as I'm going to present to each of my clients whose pet has a specific issue, the same recommendations for treatment plans. But when I think about applying fairness to the animal, in this case to the cat, I again pose the question, can we ever consider it fair to that cat to amputate its toes so that we rob them of natural behaviors, we alter their biomechanics forever for all of their body, and we set them up for a lifetime of torture? And again, I think that we can't escape 
that the answer is yes, that violates this principle of justice or fairness. And so herein we are now then presented with some arguments that can, in fact, reinforce what we know in our hearts is the right thing. What we know in our gut is the right thing. What we know when we fly by the seat of our pants is the right thing, which is to keep our patients intact. But now we actually have a moral argument that allows us to have a conversation that is grounded in a framework that we can say, yes, when we look at these bioethical principles, we can solidly argue against this mutilation of our patients that allows us then to have a structured conversation with our client to say, not only is this bad medicine, but this is morally wrong as well. And let me help you understand why. I hope that answers your question. Uh, it's a fantastic answer to the question, actually. It's just so, so useful just to have that. And it, as you were talking, I was, my mind was rolling like a, like some crazy ticker through all of the things we do. And really the thing that jumped in my head was this is, I think, and I speak only for myself here, but I think I went through vet school being brainwashed to a certain extent and not thinking as freely as perhaps I should about certain subjects. And I think that is, that's, you know, and you look at the group think perhaps that, that is there over many issues, even something is apparently obviously undebatable as nutrient and you think well actually when you start looking at it through these frameworks it's not as clear cut as we might think and with changes in evidence for benefits and and whatnot you think actually it's it's good to have this from my perspective looking at this so that we can just parse through the things we do so we don't just do it because we always did it and it allows us to think more freely there's a mental agility that goes with a framework like this so i think it's a it's a phenomenal answer. So thank you for that. And, um, and this, I feel very much like there's a whole three hour, five hour, <laughs> 15 hour lifetime <sighs> conversation to have around this, Robin. It's, uh, it's an incredible subject. And listen, I'm just, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I, this conversation is going so fast. Yeah. So I wonder if I could interject one mm. small thing. So please. That previous example I gave, I really gave from the standpoint that this is an issue that a, the, I think every single general practitioner, primary care provider is going to have the opportunity to wrestle with. But yeah. another sort of maybe less obvious example where bioethical principle application can and should be part of the conversation happens in the tertiary care facilities. So you know as well as anyone that teaching hospitals are no longer secondary care facilities. We have private practices with multiple specialties represented that really have taken over that niche of secondary care. So I do primary care and my yeah. specialist colleagues do the secondary care 
And by the time a patient gets to the university, it's really tertiary care. It's way out in the stratosphere. So something like this scenario, I have a 13-year-old golden retriever who has renal insufficiency, hypothyroidism, multiple joint osteoarthritis, early evidence of some congestive heart failure, and now we find a brain tumor. And we know that we have the ability now to crack a cranium and take out a brain tumor. Okay, should we do that? If we say we should, can we defend that morally as well as medically? And if we say perhaps not, can we defend that both morally and medically? And this is where the balancing of benefits to burdens becomes so important. And that's the piece I don't want people who listen to this podcast to lose sight of, is that this is really about creating a a framework and a context within which to balance benefits to burdens. Because in the tertiary care facility, there's an old saying, I don't know if they have this in Scotland, but here in the U.S., we say things like, if the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem is a nail. And so in a tertiary care facility, when we see a brain tumor, we crack the cranium and cut it out. That's what we do. And it's this myopia that I hope to target, to expand the vision, to really, to include a true balancing of benefits to burdens. It's such a valuable, valuable thing. Robin, you've given me so much food for thought in our conversations. I mean, I've laughed, I've cried, I've pondered, and I think there's there's just wheels spinning my head. I want to thank you. Firstly, for the time you've spared to have this conversation. Uh, secondly, for the work you're doing and pushing boundaries and making us think harder about things that matter. And thirdly, just just for being awesome, just for being you, because I just I'm blown away by you. You're a phenomenal human being. So thank you so much for the time you've spent. I wondered if you had any last thoughts you'd like to share with the audience before we sign off. Good heavens. Well, this has been such a privilege because, uh, first of all, I adore what you continue to do for the profession, supporting our colleagues and expanding people's consciousness and and really putting out there the kind of information that will help us all, I I hope, A, do a better job, but not just do a better job in our work, but do a better job on ourselves. I, prompting us to think about things that perhaps are outside our wheelhouse. So I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I agree with you that we have at least 15 more hours of things we can <laughs> talk about. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to do some of that over, hopefully over adult beverages at an upcoming conference or two. You're getting the biggest hug next time I see you, just so you know. Just I'm probably taking a run from about 15 uh, yards or more, so just brace. I'll brace myself. But um, <laughs> as far as like last words to those 
people who have chosen to sign on and listen. I just want people who are in our profession to be able to remember the magic of being in veterinary medicine. We have the most amazing job. One of the stories I love to tell is the fact that we have this precious family pet relationship that we serve. We serve the most amazing relationship. So my mother was a fine woman and my parents acquired a dog named Andre, who was a Chinese pug. Now, when I was growing up, we always had food on the table. I always had shoes on my feet. I always had clothes on my back. My parents didn't beat me. They didn't lock me in the closet. I thought I had a great life. And then I met Andre, and I found out what my life might have been like because Andre wanted for nothing. Here's a dog who had the greatest life ever. He had things, he had considerations that I didn't even know I could dream about as a child growing up. (laughs) And when my mother was diagnosed with stage 3B ovarian cancer and given six weeks to live, it was Andre who gave my mother a reason to wake up in the morning. And it was Andre who helped my mother see beyond the next CBC. And it was Andre who gave my mother the resilience to live through the adverse events of her latest chemotherapy. And when my mother died almost seven years after her diagnosis, it was Andre who was in the hospital-based hospice on her bed, helping her make her transition from this world to the next. And that is the magic and the preciousness of the relationship that we have the privilege to serve. And that's the piece I don't want our colleagues to lose sight of. That's three times you've made me cry, Robin. But what a beautiful thing. I'm going to quote, you quoted the Scottish bard, uh, Bobby Burns, as you called him. (laughs) I love that, by the way. And I will end this by quoting back at you. We lick some heart, I pooed a rose. And indeed, what a flower you are, Robin Downing. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a real pleasure and privilege to chat. Uh, Thank you, Dave. Right back at you. I can't wait until I get to see you in person. Love you bunches. So what an incredible episode. My thanks, my admiration, my incredible love for the human being that is Dr. Robin Downing just beams out. Uh, And I'm sure that you've probably done a lot of falling in love with this lady as well. Now, check out her work. It's on downingcenter.com. That's her website for the Downing Center for Animal Pain Management. And if you get the chance to see Robin speak at a conference, do yourself a massive favor and go do that. And 
If you liked this show, if this show was something you needed to hear today, that will be true for others. Please share the show with somebody you think needs to hear this. And I would be so grateful if in addition to that, you would leave a review on the iTunes. So until next time, from all of us here at Venex International, to all of you out there, be safe, be well, and be happy. Be happy.